Hello, everyone. This is another episode of the Unisoft Question. I have a wonderful guest here today, president and CEO of Canly, the household name in the Canadian legal circles. Sarah Sutherland is here with me today. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Palat. How are you doing? Oh, I'm very good. I'm extremely happy that you are visiting my show, that you are a guest on this show. I'm sure that every single lawyer in Canada has heard and or has used Canly. It's really a, the household name. I also think it is the most successful legal tech project in Canada, maybe even in the world. So I can't wait to talk about all of these things. But uh, first of all, uh, please uh, talk to us about your path to this high position, uh, a position of great responsibility, great impact. So you, of course, are originally from the West Coast, correct? Yes. And where on the West Coast uh, were you born or grew up? I was born in Vancouver. You were born in Vancouver. You Vancouver born and bred? Yes. What is it like? How is it different from being a Toronto born and bred person? What is it different about being born and bred and about growing up in Vancouver? Um, I don't know. It's kind of it's it's difficult to say because I haven't uh, ever lived in Toronto, so I I I don't. Uh, it's difficult to say what it's like there to compare. Um, certainly, there are. Uh, you know, it's a, a different ethnic mix. It's a different kind of founder culture. So it's it's a, a very different community. Um, you know, we we have the large Chinese community, which I always feel a certain affinity with. Whenever I travel, I I kind of get to a certain point, and then I want to go to Chinatown so I can feel at home again. Um, and Chinatown is it's it's kind of nice. It's kind of the same everywhere you go. It has that same, you know, there's that feel of, of, of Chinatown. We always used to go when I was a child, my, my mother would take me and we'd go and buy vegetables and have lunch and everything. So, um, so yeah, I think that's, that's different. Um, the weather, obviously, it's a different, uh, a different ethos when it's uh, rains for half the year. Well, but your major in undergrad was English Lit. That's right. So how do you go uh, from uh, Chinatown to English Lit? What took you down that path? Um, well, I always enjoyed, uh, I always enjoyed reading and um, somehow it was just the, the subject that spoke to me at the time. I didn't really have a very strong idea what I wanted to do. And so I just studied what I enjoyed. Um, though after I graduated with my with my English degree, I actually went and lived for two years in China. Uh, so it's it's more like the English lit degree took me to China than the other way around. So I, I taught uh, I taught children English for a couple of years. Right. So this is, of course, a very major theme on the show is, is people becoming lawyers because or becoming members of the legal profession or the legal industry because they didn't know what to do with themselves. <laughs> uh, and um, 
nevertheless, it's really curious to see how people find their way from I don't know what to do with myself to I'm present CEO of Canley or, you know, I'm a, a judge or I am <laughs> a partner at this amazing law firm. And uh, there is definitely a pattern there. So I, I think you started understanding better uh, about what you wanted from life and from your career by the time you went to grad school, where you st studied, of course, library and information studies. Library and information studies is not English lit. It, it's no. not something you do because you don't know what to do with your life. Uh, is my understanding correct? Yes, I think uh, it. I, I, I recall being a very small child and uh, being at the library and thinking it was great and uh, telling my mother that uh, that's, that's what I wanted to do. And, and she said, well, you have to be very smart and very good at school to do that. And so I immediately thought, well, that's not for me then. But uh, <laughs> uh, at some point, uh, I, went, I went back to school a few years out of my undergrad and uh, decided to pursue that for, for a career. And uh, I, I enjoyed that work, um, but I, I found that I kept being drawn more to the technology. The more I did, the more I, I kept kind of focusing on the, the more technical side. And when the job came up at Canley, it, was, it, it felt like a good fit. I, 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 I think there is a misunderstanding about library and information science. So there's a little known fact about me. I was actually admitted to a library information science program many, many years ago. I never started it, but uh, I think a lot of people believe that this program prepares or trains librarians, which it does. I mean, mm -hmm. some librarians probably graduated from that program, but it doesn't train only librarians, or maybe it's not even the primary purpose of this program. Can you please clarify what uh, the uh, library and information studies or library information schools, what they teach, who they prepare, who they train? Uh, I think the, the, the goal is to prepare people to approach information as its own discipline. So uh, things like the way that people um, integrate information. How, how, do you, how do you learn? How do you find things? How do you know the things that you know or think you know? How uh, do you arrange information in a way that will help people navigate it in an effective way and understand what they need? How do you, um, you know, how, how do you kind of control it so that um, it, it makes sense? How do you make a system out of information, uh, which can be very, very different? And so, um, the, you know, the, the largest, most common organizations in our, in our society that, that do that work are libraries. Um, but there are, there are lots of different ways people uh, get jobs, um, at companies, you know, arranging websites in logical ways, people get um, people get work um, in in IT companies uh, doing various things to to organize information in logical ways. Um, so while libraries are the most common outcome, it's it's uh, quite flexible what people can do with that education. So even when I went to law school, which was a while ago more than 10 years ago. 
libraries were still filled with books. They were still filled with mm -hmm. bookshelves, but people, that's not why people went into those um, places. That's not why students went into libraries, not to pick books from shelves. Although most of, of library space was at the time still occupied by books. Nobody uh, really used books even back then anymore, as, uh, at least not noticeably much. People went into the libraries to sit down at desks, pull out their laptops, connect with the Wi-Fi network and access legal information databases from there or to read uh, texts they purchased because uh, profs assigned them and forced students to buy them, right? Uh, so even back then, I could see a conflict between the original purpose of the library and the current use of the library. Mm -hmm. How has, since my time in law school, since more than 10 years ago, right? Uh, how has that conflict evol evolved and what is the current status of that conflict? Well, I think at its base, uh, Libraries are organizations that are created because it's more effective to have a large amount of information resources um, purchased and acquired and maintained centrally than it is to have everybody have their own individual resources. So if you think about a university, uh, you know, people need access to a very large uh, range of resources. And if they had to all purchase them themselves, it would be, of course, very profitable for the publishers, but um, it would be uh, financially prohibitive. So, you know, it, even if it didn't exist, uh, you, you'd almost have to invent it. You know, here, each department would be pooling their books and then borrowing them in, informally. And eventually you would, you would end up with a system that was very like a library, I think. Um, and so whether the materials are subscribed to, whether they are, um, you know, everybody comes together and funds them centrally as a way for everybody to get access. In some ways, that's all kind of the impulse of a library. So for example, Canley uh, was founded because, uh, it was, you know, prohibitively expensive to access primary law online. So when Lexham started working in this space, the commercial publishers were charging $250 to $300 per Supreme Court decision just to access the, the document online. And so it, it wasn't sustainable. So uh, the, the law societies representing the lawyers came together to provide an alternate solution. So uh, each year, um, about $40 uh, from every lawyer in Canada um, comes to Canley and provides our core funding so that we can provide this service to lawyers and to the public and make it available for everybody. So you are essentially telling me uh, how Canley eliminated the need for libraries, uh, or at least for uh, part of what libraries are for. I completely agree with your premise that combining resources is efficient. I completely agree with your premise that it, it is 
efficient and valuable to ha have Canly aggregate legal information and deliver it to uh, all lawyers in Canada uh, in return for uh, part of the lawyers' law society membership fees, essentially. But that this is the job that libraries and librarians used to do, right? So uh, before they used to combine uh, cases in uh, into reports or thick books that they called uh, law reports, mm -hmm. and they were standing on shelves, and lawyers would have to go unless they were rich and they could afford to buy them. They had they went to law libraries, and they pulled them from shelves. They use an index or some other access uh, methodology to look up cases. Now they use Canly. So Canly eliminated the need for bookshelves. And this goes back to that conflict that I, I was talking about, the conflict between all this obvious physical space that was designed for something that's not necessary anymore. But there is a more scary trend. Maybe it's not scary, but it has to do with humans. So it always is more scary when it has to, to do with humans, where Technology not only eliminates the need for shelves or books, but it also seems to eliminate the need for reference librarians or for librarians. Does that trend exist? And do you think that Canley is now doing some of the work that reference librarians used to do exclusively before? Uh, I I think I... I don't think that, that what Canley is doing is really negating the, the need for libraries or, or kind of... it's. Um, you know, Canly becomes a, a central repository and, and certainly there's less need to have uh, print volumes on shelves for, for primary law than there used to be. That's that's very true. But even if Canly wasn't there, I think that that would be um, the case that, that there's a, an overall trend to access this kind of content online. And uh, libraries have, I think, in in most cases kind of moved past the, the model of just providing books on shelves as their primary service offering. So, and I think reference librarians continue to be necessary. Uh, people have a, a, a difficult time navigating legal information and um, Canly is not, uh, Canly is not a, a system that is staffed in a way that would allow people to to get individual assistance in the way that they may need. And so I think the reference librarians and libraries in general provide the service of combining the resources from different sources. So they access content from Canly, but also everyone else in the space. And then they also help instruct people and direct people and and show them how to navigate this kind of complex and technical body of knowledge. I'm seeing a, a theme here or a pattern, and uh, it, it's not restricted to the legal industry where technology replaces physical space and people. Mm -hmm. And we, we have seen it in many other uh, industries before. For example, automated teller machines replace tellers. They even have the word teller in their names, right? And um, there are many other examples. And uh, some in the legal industry uh, uh, take this trend even further when they make predictions about the future. So uh, we just discussed how uh, Canly, and I'm not singling Canly out here. I mean, all other legal databases are doing the same. How Canly replaced 
the need for physical spaces or eliminated the need for physical spaces and maybe uh, substitute itself for some of what reference librarians do. So there was definitely uh, uh, some kind of effect from legal databases on use and need, use of and need in uh, librarians. I think it's a good trend. I'm not really criticizing Canley or technology. I'm a believer in technology. But I think because everybody can agree that on this trend, everybody can agree on what, what's happening with legal research, perhaps it will help us think about even bigger trends. So some people take it as far as to say that lawyers are going to disappear because technology is unstoppable, right? Software is eating the world is, is the, the phrase that people use. So in, in this respect, I'm really curious about Canley's vision. Is Canley's vision a technological vision where it, there is a buy-in into that theory that tech software is eating the world? Or is Canley's vision a vision of just one of the many stakeholders without any intention of eating the world, if you know what I mean? Uh, I, I would say that uh, our, our vision, our, our, uh, our, our vision is not to eat the world. Uh, we were not. Uh, <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of room for a lot of technologies to do things better. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about artificial intelligence. I've, I actually um, just finished a book on, on legal data and artificial intelligence. Um, and uh, so I've, I've been thinking about this a lot over the last couple of years. I think that there's certainly room for certain activities to be changed. Um, and whether people will benefit from those changes or not depends a little bit on them and where they fit already. So um, if, you know, as going back to the library example, if, if you work in a library, and you think that your job is keeping books on shelves and that's your core role and identity, then the future doesn't look great for your employment stability. It, you know, it's, it, has, it has issues with that. If, if those things change, then maybe it doesn't look as good in the, into the future. But if you see your, your role in this kind of more human way of navigating technology, uh, helping other people navigate it, then that's that's a different matter. And I think that law is like that as well. So, um, you know, there's certain lawyers, I think, who will probably do very well out of the, you know, evolving space. So people who are very technically savvy. Um, people who are uh, like big, big stars who could potentially have, have scalable uh, practices, which which would kind of derive from their star power and they could serve more people and, and, get, and, and make more money that way. Um, you know, and then some people will probably not be as affected. So for example, people who work in areas of law that are changing all the time, you, you know, you're not gonna be able to automate that as much because you're never gonna have training data if the, if the underlying law is changing all the time. Uh, but then, you know, if, if someone is, uh, creating the same document over and over and not necessarily bringing a lot of creativity or problem solving to that process, 
maybe that is something that won't be as stable going forward if if those kinds of things of, of like relatively simple document creation which is repetitive are are your primary mode of working right so i i think i want to ask you about um the rationales and i want to ask you about the motivations uh, of Kenley. I want to expand on this. Why? Because we have a crisis in this mm -hmm. country and we have a crisis in the United States and in many other similar countries. It's called access to justice mm -hmm. and access to justice crisis. And the story you told us about the origins of Kenley is extremely fascinating and relevant, I think. It's extremely hard to fathom that so many law societies, so many lawyers came together in a concerted effort, pulled money and resources, and accomplished an incredibly successful project together. This is really hard for me to imagine. Lawyers building something, cooperating, pulling their money. Obviously, they did it because there was an emergency. And the, what you told me about the facts that you shared about the, uh, the cost of accessing case law, to, to my mind, constitute, constitute emergency at the time. So uh, emergency, what I learned from you is emergency with access to justice existed as early as the early days of Kenley, which is the 90s, okay. correct me if I'm wrong, right? Well, I think it's much worse now. And the, the scary thing is that we have a lot more technology now. And the scary thing is that Kenley has done so much and has done such a great job since its founding, yet the access to justice crisis is so bad that every judge who is making any kind of public statement is talking about. And uh, access to justice, because that's how our legal system uh, works, is access to information. At least, at least it's a big part of accessing justice, accessing, accessing information. So what is the, the place and the role of this awareness of, of this crisis, of the access to justice crisis in, in Canley's uh, strategic plan or Canley's vision? So technology can be a killer, but it can also be a, a remedy, right? Is technology the remedy that Canley proposing, or are there any other proposals on the table? Uh, we certainly, you know, in in some ways we're like a library, in some ways we're like a tech startup. You know, we we kind of wear different hats. So technology is always something we're considering. It's always on the table. Um, so our primary mandate is to provide access to information um and so uh you know we look at that you know better ways to present it better ways to navigate it um you know our, our commentary program part of that is is a, an access to justice initiative it's to make canly better uh better for lawyers better for the public and to provide some of that explanation which the the law itself you know if you just end up with um if you want to get divorced for example and you end up with ten thousand cases with the word divorce in them that's not helpful and you need you need an explanation uh documents like we 
are very kind of wedded. Our, our primary mandate is to provide access to the, the primary law. It's, you know, these big texty documents. And for us to really move entirely beyond that, that, that model of, of text would, I think, be very difficult for us. Uh, but we have, you know, we, we try to expand out what, what we offer over time, whether that will continue to be the case, maybe video, you know, maybe multimedia is, is, is the way for the future for us. It's, it's certainly something that we kind of talk about every once in a while of, of how to do that. But um, I, one of the things I think is interesting is, is considering access to justice as being beyond access to information. So I think access to justice can't just be access to information, especially in print. Um, you know, if you, if you look at literacy statistics in Canada, um, about 50% of people are, are well served by textual information or well able to access information that way. And about 50% are not. Uh, and so it's, it, it has limits. And so it's, it's kind of the, the space where we are and it's important and there's more we can do and we're always looking for the more we can do, but I'm not sure, it's not gonna answer all the problems. Eventually, a lot of people are gonna need people who are gonna help them. Absolutely. So speaking of other people, speaking of third parties, I see Canley as occupying a, a middle position between the source of information, the courts and consumers of information who are lawyers, maybe self-represented litigants, academics, whatnot. It means that uh, there are two links, uh, two conduits. One is coming into Canley, that's courts to Canley, courts sending judgments to Canley, or courts sending information to Canley. And then the second conduit is uh, information flowing out of Canley. After Canley applies certain formatting, uh, certain uh, services such as hyperlinking, such as noting up, and, uh, you know, Lexbox, other useful things that Canley does. So when I say, when I ask you about what Canley's uh, role should be in resolving access to justice, I don't insist on Canley doing everything itself. Because mm -hmm. obviously Canley is only one part of, of this pyramid, right? At the bottom of which are the courts. Uh, I, I've, I talk about perhaps Canley being um, a platform, perhaps Canley being the operating system of, of our law or of our legal system. Uh, so let me explain. So there are two directions here that uh, we can attack. And I, when I say we, I mean, of course, the general legal industry or the general legal profession with the leadership of Canley. Number one is the information coming from the courts. So mm -hmm. my understanding is it's it's not really standardized. It's pretty messed up. So it makes Canley's job harder. So even improving that flow from the bottom to Canley, from the courts, 
to Canley would make Canley's job easier and would probably facilitate and make possible new tech technological applications. Because when you have standard data, you, you can do more things with this data. That's number one. And I'm curious to hear about you, uh, what's being done in that respect. And number two, it's the outflow, the outflow uh, of information from Canley. It's the flow of information from Canley to its cons uh, consumers. Canley, I'm not asking Canley to build all possible tech applications with this data, no. But for example, Canley exposes an API. Mm -hmm to its data. And API today is the standard way to build applications on top of a platform. I use the, uh, that API, you know, some people may know, some people may not know I'm a techie and I build things. So I use Canly's API. I have access to Canly's API and it's pretty comprehensive if you're talking about the scope of data, but I would say it's fairly rudimentary in terms of um, it being commercial grade API, right? I'm talking mm -hmm. about authentication and things like that. So I don't think it really changed over the years, Scanly API, right? And I know there are some issues with uh, enabling commercial use or uh, wide scale use of Canly's API. And I'd like you to talk about that because if Canly is having difficulties, we should all uh, rally behind Canly and help Canly overcome these difficulties because access to justice is at stake. So if you can talk first about um, the flow of data from the courts, what are the issues there? And then second, why Canley's API is not uh, progressing, evolving, and what are the issues there? That'd be great. Uh, well, the data that comes from the courts, um, some of it is very well processed. Um, uh, it's, I, I, in some ways, it's like you need to step back another another step. So, you know, the the court judgments are made in this kind of you know they're they're handwritten, they're 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 artisanal, they're they're unique each one, um, and there's not uh, very much structure required in them. So some of them, um, you know, they they all have dates and docket numbers basically, but uh, they don't necessarily have. Um, some kind of a, a coded introduction or summary or, um, you know, findings section that with defined headings that would allow you to, to kind of have uh, a bit more structure in them. Uh, it, it is possible, I think, um, with, with current tech to start extracting some of that, that data from the unprocessed judgments, but if the the courts and the judges cared to really look at, at having strong standards for the way that documents could be created uh, and that would facilitate reuse, I think that that would be very helpful. Um, the international example I would give is Singapore, where um, I'm I'm told that you know as they were starting to publish them online, they they came together and they they defined certain standards so that that would be kind of scalable that. And, and they, they allow a lot more analysis of the law than, than our system does. Uh, and, but it would, it would involve changing the process of document creation for, for a lot of people in order to make that happen. So it's, um, it would be very interesting. Um, I'm not sure that I see a, a kind of a 
path where that would be coming up very soon. Um, aside from that, there's the process within the courts of how the documents are actually sent to Canley. Um, uh, as you no doubt know, our technology supplier Lexum has other software products. One of them is a product called Decisia, which is um, you know, related to the, the Canley case law databases. And the courts who have that software, they just have a, an API and it all just, it comes to us very, very smoothly. So um, that's for, from our perspective, the, the easiest way to, to get data directly to Canley. Sorry, sorry for interrupting. Just for the audience, uh, Lexum is uh, Canley's technology provider, and it's a wholly owned uh, subsidiary of Canley, correct? That's right. Um, so it's not intended to be a sales pitch, but you know, you you asked uh, the courts could develop their own software that would have um, some kind of API or more data-driven way to transfer the data. But um, so far, to my knowledge, in Canada, the only one who uh, has that technology for the, directly for the courts is Lexum. Um, right now, uh, it varies greatly. I don't think anyone's still sending us a case law in WordPerfect format, but that happened for a long time. It's only recently that stopped. Um, and so it can be everything from, you know, this, this nice formatted API to judges assistance emailing judgments just as attachments and so you can see there's a lot of variability there it would make our operations a lot easier if if that were were controlled um i'm sorry the gardeners have come hopefully you can't hear the leaf floor um beyond that on the on the other side our api the the problem with our API, a lot of it is just that it's not our data. And so we don't necessarily have permission from the courts to, to make it all available. Um, it's not, you know, this, this kind of bulk access to law is not a problem that we can solve by simply turning on a button and, and giving everybody who wants it access to, to the law. It's, uh, it's, it's something that requires some, some thought and action from the community um, so that we ensure that uh, it's done in a, in a responsible way, that it's done in a way that is, you know, recognizes the needs of the courts, recognizes the needs of the parties to, to litigation, um, and that it's, that it's, that it's fair uh, and so these concerns haven't really been addressed. The uh, Canadian Judicial Council released their their uh, their document this year uh, about bulk access to case law, and and hopefully with some leadership from that direction, this will be better resolved, and we can and we can move forward in a more meaningful way. So I'm really curious what it's going to take to move forward in a meaningful way on, on both of these fronts, both uh, on the front of standardization of judgments and on the front of uh, Canley API. Uh, I, I know that this profession moves slowly sometimes, okay? Mm -hmm. And the courts move slowly. They're all independent, which is a great thing uh, when it comes to 
protecting civil liberties and ensuring due process, but not necessarily a great thing when it comes to administration of the courts, right? So what is it going to take? For example, I don't know if you've heard, but Ontario Superior Court, Superior Court of Justice in Ontario, standardized on Canley in its practice direction on how to cite cases and factums. Mm -hmm. So we don't need to file books of authorities here anymore. If we provide Canley links, and in fact, I think it's not just recommended, it's expected that in our citations, in our factums, we provide links to Canley instead of filing thick uh, books of authorities. That's great. And I don't know if Canley lobbied that. I don't think so. I think just I think that Canley just has so much weight and become has become a de facto standard that that was the first most obvious choice for Ontario Superior Courts of Justice. But that was uh, their initiative. It just mm -hmm. came from them. We can't just wait for the courts to do the right thing, I think, on their own. We have to uh, spur them. We have to prod them somehow. Let me give you an example of how things changed because of COVID uh, in, in one thing. So Law Society of Ontario has a standard terms of services uh, on its website. Mm -hmm. Like any normal organization, any major or not so major organization have TOS on their website. So before March 25th, 2020, uh, the uh, terms of service included a linking agreement which prohibited linking to any page on the law site's website except for the homepage. Mm -hmm. That was in the terms of service. And of course, then COVID hit, the pandemic hit, and the law site just started publishing all, all these <laughs> Uh, uh, necessary guidelines on what lawyers should do differently because of the pandemic, right? Commissioning affidavits virtually and things like that. That was an emergency. We lived through an emergency. It's still not over. And But then there was this linking, link, linking agreement that I knew about because I'm such a nerd, but many people didn't know about. So I'm tweeting on March 24, 2020, this is an emergency law society. You should repeal your linking agreement so licensees can share information on your website freely. And I copied Malcolm Mercer, who was at the time, the, uh, who led the law society at the mm -hmm. time. So on the following morning, and I tweeted that, I think, in the afternoon. On the following morning, Malcolm Mercer, um, quote, tweeted me. Uh, and, 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 and said, the linking agreement has been revised to permit linking to pages other than the main page. Just a matter of hours. Mm -hmm. That's how quickly things can be done. So what is it going to take for our courts to standardize, to standardize judgments? Uh, do we need to create a new organization that will lobby them? Do we need to bring all the AGs together? Do we need to bring all the chief justices together? Because I, 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 I am not going to get tired of saying this. This is a double emergency. We always had an access to justice emergency. Plus, we have the pandemic now. So what are we going to do on that front? And what are we going to do on the uh, API front? If it's only a copyright issue, if it's only a licensing issue, do we need uh, to pass laws to resolve that? Or is it within uh, Canley's power uh, to uh, figure it out? Uh, what are your suggested steps? This is difficult. I, 
I, I certainly, as you know, I personally, and I think as an organization, Kelly, we don't we don't operate by by calling other organizations out publicly. It's not uh, it's not the way the way that we want to operate. Uh, I think that there's certainly room for organizations like the Canadian Judicial Council to provide leadership. They're very influential. Uh, and certainly Canley would be happy to, to contribute to those kinds of initiatives. Um, and so, you know, the, the template for things like that are, you know, is perhaps the, the neutral citation, which, you know, Canada was one of the, the leaders in the neutral citation development. The Canadian Judicial Council and Canley at the time, uh, were, were involved in, in getting that to happen and, and for, uh, to, to lobby the courts to, to adopt those standards. Um, and so maybe that is, is a way forward of, of having organizations that are influential with the courts to, to try to get a, a standard uh, to change. Uh, that said, it's, I think it's difficult to get people, to persuade people to change uh, their work at such uh, um, a kind of basic daily level, uh, you know. So for for something like a uniform citation, um, it doesn't really change a judge's workflow that much to you know to assign this numbering system as opposed to that one. I'm sure they, on a daily basis, it just didn't really matter to them much at all. Uh, but to actually change, to have to train every judge in Canada how to properly encode, to you know, to use a, a decision writing software that probably wouldn't be Microsoft Word anymore, and to you know, to have them define these these standards, they would lose control. And I don't think that as a group, it's necessarily something that they're wanting to do is lose control. And so. Um, Canley might be part of that solution. And certainly, you know, in terms of something like technology recommendations or standard recommendations, we would be very happy to contribute. But in terms of a lot of that is about changing hearts and minds. And uh, I, I'm not sure that ch changing hearts and minds about how documents are created at that level is, is something that, that Canley is in a position to lead right now. It's certainly something we're, we're open to talking about. I must say, I love Canley. So <laughs> I love Canley so much that on a trial basis, I decided to stop using commercial database. I'm a commercial mm -hmm. litigator. I'm a commercial litigator and I've been a commercial litigator for more than 10 years. So on a trial basis, I decided to stop using commercial databases because I'm having a hard time seeing their value when Canley is doing such a good job. Of course, we just talked about all the other things that Canley could be doing and mm -hmm. uh, maybe third parties are preventing it from doing. You talked about inertia, you talked about changing habits of judges and judges are of course, huge stakeholders in the situation. I wanna give you an example of electronic court filing in Ontario. I would uh, probably laugh in somebody's face 
uh, in uh, January of 2020, they told me that by August of that year, we're going to have full electronic filing in Ontario. I would probably laugh or cry at the same time because it was inconceivable. But it happened. It happened not just partially, it just happened on a full scale, a hundred percent electronic filing. And uh, suddenly all judges learned to uh, use materials in electronic form. They just didn't have a choice because the chief justice and the AG together decided that it was necessary. So I'm a believer in dramatic change. After 2020, I became a believer in dramatic change. In this respect, where do you see Canley in uh, 10 years? What is it going to look like? What is it going to do? Is it still going to be there? Is it going to be a different organization? Or is it going to be uh, doing something else or the same thing? And where do you see the state of legal data in 10 years? Uh... Where Canley will be, it's it's uh, it's an interesting question. Where um, you know we will be entering our strategic planning process uh, in the not too distant future, so it will be much more clear then. Um, I I think I I see Canley as continuing to be part of that legal information infrastructure that that kind of core component of the of the system that that brings together you know documents from multiple sources and provides it all in a public accessible way you know it's that that core operations or core mandate um i i think that we will be uh, much more driven by technologies which are uh you know, starting to be a lot more effective, a lot more reliable now. So things like machine learning, um, you know, we weren't we weren't an early adopter of machine learning, and I think, um, and partly it's because you know we have limited resources. We need to make sure that the projects that we do are, you know, cost effective. That we we know we can do them before we we assign to them. Where and so um, we we tend to focus on the state of the industry as opposed to the state of the art. Uh, but we've already, we've, you know, we started doing machine learning projects. We did a, a project to uh, do automated classification of uh, document uh, decisions from the, the courts in Saskatchewan. Uh, we are in the process of doing a, a similar project for decisions in Ontario. And so it's something we want to expand across the country. Um, and so certainly integrating some of those technologies more is, is something we would definitely want to do. Um, whether we would be uh, involved in systems for things like uh, bulk data provision, which you know, seems to be something that, that you're looking at with, with regard to the API, um, that's a little bit more difficult to, to kind of know. I think it it depends on a lot of stakeholders that are external to us. And so it's not something that I feel comfortable saying, well, Canley's gonna be in this position because it's it's a system and we can't, we can't decide on our own. Sarah, please talk about your book, what it's called 
who is publishing it, when it is coming out? Uh, my, my book is called uh, Legal Data and Information in Practice. It's, called, it's going to be published by uh, Rutledge uh, out of the UK. And uh, it will be released on uh, January 31st, 2022. And uh, I, I actually just finished the very, very last work that I needed to do on it last weekend. So I'm feeling quite happy to be free of that. And uh, so, yeah, it should, it shouldn't, uh, I don't believe there will be any delays. It should be available in January and it's available for pre-order now. Thank you so much, Sarah, for this information. Uh, I can't wait to read your book and oh, I can't you. wait to go and read some cases on Canley right after we record this interview. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you.